If the patient wants to talk about energy levels and kundalini and chakras, then I'll meet them there. If they want to talk about receptors and neurotransmitters and brain pathways, then we'll use that. The most important thing is not to impose a language or a narrative as the clinician, but to let the patient lead the way. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. You're listening to a recording taken at a psychedelic conference hosted in Iceland, attended by today's guest, Dr. Ben Sasser. He's a writer, psychiatrist and researcher working in the UK and is based in Bristol. He's the co-founder of Awaken, which is a clinic in London, Oslo and Bristol, delivering psychedelic-assisted therapy as a treatment for mental health and addiction. This combines talking therapy sessions with, yes, people taking psychedelics. In the clinic in Bristol, they currently offer ketamine-assisted therapy, as that's the only thing that's available and not illegal to take uh, in medical conditions. He's also conducting the UK's first clinical studies with MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of PTSD, trauma and alcohol dependence. He's an outspoken lobbyist for change in the UK's current drug classification system and firmly believes that a more progressive regulatory policy would reduce the harms of recreational drug use. And himself, he's one of the few people who has ever received MDMA, LSD, DMT, ketamine and psilocybin in a legal research setting. So, controversial stuff. We dive deep with Ben about this whole new world of drug taking. Enjoy. Hello, Ben. Do I call you Ben or, or Dr. Sessa? Hello, Neil. My name is Ben Sessa. Please do call me Ben. You're literally in your clinic, aren't you, as we speak? And you could at any moment potentially be given a nod to run off. Yes, I'm talking to you from the Awaken Clinic in Bristol, which is in Clifton Village. We have patients in here today. I should be okay. I've got a nice, quiet, private room. But if there's any kind of uh, medical issues that they need my support with, I may get a knock on the door, but I've briefed everyone to give me some time off for this. So we should be good. Fantastic. And I've been looking forward to this because I do interview quite a lot of politicians and community leaders. This is a bit of a left field sort of topic really for us. And I'm I'm really interested in the field of trauma from a sort of personal experience basis, but also from stuff that I'm reading about and watching a lot of stuff on YouTube, the development into the use of pharmaceutical drugs and psychedelics and assisting trauma therapy is also something that I'm kind of interested in. And I think I stumbled across a Netflix documentary about the use of psychedelics in healing. There was a How to Change Your Mind featuring a chap called Michael Pollan, and I featured quite heavily in the third episode on MDMA. Yeah. Are you an ex-raver as well? Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a DJ, and I was in my 20s in the 90s, so I was very much sort of involved in that scene at that point. Yeah, likewise. I was a raver from about 1990. And obviously, that was a quite a sort of golden period that lots of people that had experienced sort of ecstasy or experienced the rave scene radically transformed and changed their lives from growing their hair long, you know, traveling around in camper vans, people were giving up their jobs, changing what they did, football hooligans were hugging on the dance floor. I think looking back on it now, it was it was quite a radical era of change that people at the time probably didn't realize as much. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think for us, it was our 1960s. It really was a radical change in culture and certainly with respect to the drug scene and uh, drug culture and the dance music scene, it, it really was quite epoch shattering in terms of uh, that, that development in the late 80s and throughout the 90s. For some people, it was just getting wasted. But I think for a lot of people, it was far more than that. And it definitely set me on the road to, I guess, without sounding too hippie, a kind of a sort of spiritual transformation a bit. And I know, I know I'm not alone in that. Many, many people felt that at that time. Um, yeah. It's um, the rave scene was a very community cohesive experience for many people. It brought together a lot of people. Um, the idea of parties that were off grid, um, away from the traditional pubs and clubs, um, self-governed small cottage industry of DJs and MCs and ravers. 
Um, it was a very community cohesive experience. And it also did bring psychedelic drugs to a lot of people, um, which were then continued in a psycho-spiritual way. And really, in the last 20, 30 years, we've had this psychedelic renaissance with a huge increase in this field of science and medicine, but also culturally, a huge development of psychedelic societies, people coming together as collectives, forming communities. Um, it's been a very, very positive time for a lot of people in the last 20 years in respect of psychedelics been a resurgence in the West in the last 20, 30 years. But this is something in indigenous communities. So my, my partner's from Brazil. And if you go to where her dad lives up in Bahia, there are Wayasca churches and places where people will go. And, you know, you, you have similar in Peru. You have people who go to Mexico and take peyote. This sort of stuff is, is kind of new, but it's not new. Absolutely. We tend to think of three different eras of psychedelic research. The first wave, which was the late 19th century and up until 1920 in the 20th century, in which mescaline and peyote were used in the West. And then the second era, which was from the 19, late 1940s to the end of the 1960s, which was obviously the massive cultural drug explosion of the 1960s. Then there was a bit of a gap, kind of a dark ages period. Drugs were banned in the late 60s. And then we're now in this third era of psychedelic research and medicine, um, often called the psychedelic renaissance, which has been since the early 1990s. So those, those are the three areas of main psychedelic research of, the, of, of recent history. But you're quite right, indigenous uses, non-Western uses go back to the dawn of time. Um, and the, the non-Western the non uses, whether it's ayahuasca in, in Central and South America or peyote in North America and Central America, Siberia, throughout Africa, the use of uh, magic mushrooms all over the world. These go back to prehistory times. It's most likely that these medicines were being used by non-Western indigenous people in ceremonial ways for yeah. thousands of years. And from, from a Western medical model, the majority of these drugs that, as you say, are being seen as a renaissance period now, a lot of them have been made illegal. And even though most did start out as drugs that were used in a pharmaceutical, in a medical environment, that then once they became sort of used recreationally, then became banned. And that was covered yeah. in the documentary, wasn't it? You know, Timothy Leary with LSD and then the, the kind of the, the, the warehouse parties in America with, with ecstasy. Why is that? Is it seen as a sort of threat to mainstream orthodoxy? What, what's your opinion as to why these drugs were banned in, in those periods in which they were? Well, you know, the broader topic of, of drug policy and prohibition is, is a huge area of interest and research, uh, separate from the issue of psychedelics as medicines. In the question of why do we have the drug laws we have, um, there are some very sinister beginnings. Um, racism underpins the prevailing opinions and political decisions around cannabis going back to the 1930s. And then opiates, uh, the use of opium, heroin, that was also had racist undertones. And then really not, since the 1971 United Nations Charter on, on drugs, all of these drugs were banned all over the world and have remained so for the last 50 years. And this is not a biased opinion, this is a scientific opinion. Yeah. The drug laws are wrong. They are unscientific, unethical, unpleasable, immoral, and cause far more harm and death than um, the drugs themselves. So the drug laws all over the world, and particularly in the UK, are extremely flawed, and they require urgent review because it is the right thing to do to manage the issues around drugs. So banning all of these different drugs, from cannabis to cocaine, to heroin, to ecstasy, to amphetamine, banning them does not make them go away. It just hands the franchise to the mafia for the production and sale and distribution of drugs, and it makes the situation a whole lot more dangerous. So it's a different subject, as I said, to the concept. It is, it is. And I want to get a little bit onto the politics side of it. Professor David Nutt is an advisor to Awaken, who sort of famously was the previous government's chief drug advisor, said that ecstasy and LSD were less dangerous than alcohol and was fired as a consequence. And really how draconian and, as you say, how backward our drugs policy is in, in this UK and, and most, of the, most of the Western world. And I wonder if there is an even harder line being taken by this present government under Home Secretary Suella Braverman. Some of her comments yeah. have, have um, been pretty hardcore with regards to this fairly recently. 
Yeah, so I've worked with David for the last 15, 20 years. We've been close friends and colleagues. Part of my work is drug policy reform alongside David. I'm very proud of the fact that I, in a sideways way, contributed to his sacking in 2010 in that he asked me to provide reports on MDMA psychotherapy and yeah. uh, to that to that ACMD report. Um, and he was subsequently sacked. But, you know, that, that was all done in the spirit of working together. Um, so, yeah, we have been involved in this. And indeed, yes, today's current government are as backward as any other. It's not party political, whether it's Labour or Conservative. They all take the same line of we won't be soft on drugs, which is ironic because by far the softest thing you can do with regard to drugs is just put your head in the sand and ban them. It's an incredibly soft way of dealing with a complicated problem. Um, the emerging data from all over the world is demonstrating very clearly that a less prohibition stance is the best way to manage drugs. It reduces harm, it reduces deaths, it reduces crime, and ironically, it reduces usage. So the UK, at the, with the present government, but any of the last governments of the last 50 years have all been pretty much the same. Um, the Liberal Democrats, um, a few elections ago, actually made a stance on, on cannabis with, that, was, that would have been very progressive. They, they catastrophically failed at the election. Um, yeah. The Green Party have always been very consistently a lot more open-minded about drug policy review. It's one of those difficult points because if you ask most people, including the police and the courts and even the politicians themselves off the record. Well, they've all, I mean, they've all done you know, their little bits of recreational drugs at, yeah, at, at university, but, haven't they, most of them? Yeah, these yeah, days. Yeah, but they'll also agree from a data-driven point of view that the system's yeah. not working. But the trouble is nobody dare put their head above the parapet and say, OK, let's change the drug laws because there's a large sort of Middle England uh, marginal voters population who yeah. have um, believed the mm. drug policy messages of the last 50 years. And well, those messages mm. have been drip-fed and driven for so long that they're ingrained in in, yeah. in, in some people's minds, aren't they? They are, um, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, when I was a young person and the drug policy education I had was, you know, smoking cannabis is the same as injecting heroin. It yeah. was all bunched together like that. Now, I mm. think the end of the drugs war is in sight. The war on drugs is coming to an end. We're seeing that all over the world. It's in its dying years. The United Nations themselves will shift their policy by 2030. And domestic nation states all over the world are shifting their policies all the time autonomously. So that is coming to an end, which is good because it makes sense. It clearly hasn't worked. You know, we've had 50 years of this policy what do we need? Another 50 years? Twice as many prisons? Will we then finally stop people using drugs? Well, the answer is we won't stop people using drugs any more than we're going to stop people scuba diving or riding horses or driving cars. If something's risky or dangerous, like scuba diving, riding horses and driving cars, we don't ban them. We create a regulated system in which they can be used as safely as possible. And the same thing goes for drugs. They will not be eradicated by legislation. We need to control them with regulation. Do you see any negatives to drugs? To certain, dr certain drugs. Drugs. It's obviously quite emotive, isn't it? There are, you know, lots of people who do, you know, lead problematic and difficult lives through addiction, or, or people that have had mental health issues as responses to things like LSD. Or, or I mean, I know people from the rave scene that just took too much ecstasy, and their serotonin levels were depleted, and they never really quite recovered, and suffered from a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and. And there's that flip side to it as well that I think is also true. I mean, so I don't know how you would respond to that. Yeah, so it's an extraordinary question. Do I see any negatives to drugs? Do you see any negatives to cars, bread knives and lions? Um, I mean, the answer mm -hmm. is it depends. Of yeah. course, drugs can carry risks, as can everything. You can overdose on six litres of water without drugs. It's a poison if you drink six litres of water. Um, of course, drugs carry risks as well as benefits. But it's not a black and white issue of safe or dangerous. It's about how do we best manage the risks to increase the benefits and uh, therefore reduce harm to people. When you make statements like, you know, people who overdid it on the rave scene and then uh, became anxious, you would need to be very careful about the data in making a statement like that. The vast majority of people use the vast majority of drugs safely and benignly without significant harm. We know that as a fact. 
if all of this drug use always caused significant harm, we'd have queues around the block at all our treatment centers, which we don't. Even relatively heavy recreational drug use is relatively benign for most people. We know very clearly what the most dangerous drugs are in society, and it's without a doubt alcohol by a very, very long way. And there's also a very complicated relationship between excessive or harmful drug use and pre-existing mental health problems. The concept of drugs causing people's pain that they then have lifelong is fairly rare. If you look at people in drug services with addictions, and as I said, by far the greatest is alcohol, a tiny fraction of drugs addictions are things like opiate addiction and that kind of thing. The yeah. people in addiction services, almost all, over 90%, have histories of childhood trauma. The reason for becoming addicted to drugs and having problems with drugs is pre-existing mental health problems, particularly trauma. Most people without those pre-existing problems may be able to use drugs in a uh, sober and conservative way, um, in a measured way without having significant problems. Where the problems occur is because of their illegality and the therefore unsafe, unregulated use. What about people that perhaps aren't self-aware of their childhood trauma and go and do a trip at a festival and, and you know, kind of lose it a bit? And, you know, there is a correlation between overuse of LSD, some people triggering schizophrenia, and they never quite come back. That does happen as well. Or I don't know the um, data. Well, but, yeah. Can you show me the data for that erroneous statement, please, Neil? I mean, I, I, can, I, I have anecdotal experience of that with people I know. Mm -hmm. So anecdotal uh, yeah. experience um, is not... I have dangerous. personal experience of, of mm -hmm. having a bad trip and, and then having mental health issues after yeah. that. So, so I do know that to be true in my experience. Yeah, so, um, you know, LSD is not a typically psychotogenic drug unless in people who have a pre-existing... Um, and that's my point. Yeah. How do you know you've got a pre-existing yeah. condition? So it's, a, it's a great yeah. point, actually, and it really yeah. highlights how important good drug education and accurate drug education and accurate support for people using drugs, why that would be so important. Because you're quite right. At the moment, it's a Russian roulette situation. It's, um, it's like going into a pub and going up to the barman or barwoman and saying, I'd like um, a glass of liquid, please. And you don't even know what it is. You don't know yeah. how strong it is. You don't know what is in it. And the, the bar person doesn't ask you anything about your health and your mm -hmm. risks and your supports. That's the situation we're in. Um, so absolutely, it's a good question of yours, Neil. We do need to have better systems in place to regulate who takes these drugs. And the current system, which is just let the mafia give you whatever they want, no questions asked, is very dangerous indeed. Even some of the ecstasy deaths that have happened in raves, tell me if I'm wrong, a lot of that has been to do with other stuff that's in it or the percentage or amount of MDMA whereby it's yeah. just reacted negatively to somebody's system. And we are talking minute figures now. And that's not to be dismissive of people who have lost loved ones. And, but it feeds into your point when, when it is unregulated. You, people don't know what they're putting in their bodies. We've seen initiatives even in Bristol, I think, these little machines where you work out how much MDMA or how much quantity of whatever you're taking in cocaine, for example. Is that something that you welcome? 100%. You know, MDMA itself is very, very popular. We're talking 750,000 doses of MDMA every weekend in the UK for the last 30 plus years three quarters of a million doses every weekend. The actual numbers of deaths per year from MDMA are probably no more than about five in the UK for pure MDMA. Where deaths occur and are attributed to MDMA, you're quite right, always involve other drugs, whether it's alcohol, opiates, adulterated samples, and unsafe practices whilst using ecstasy or MDMA. So, you know, the, all of these things can be reduced to a minimum with the right regulation in place. There's no reason why anyone need die of any of these drugs. I mean, take heroin, for example, diamorphine. The major reason for deaths from diamorphine or, or street heroin are because of the way it is taken secretly, lone use, unpure sample, unknown potency. That's why people die. Whilst at the meantime, um, diamorphine, the same drug, is used in hospitals up and down the land every day, perfectly safely in people. So it's not about the drug or even the dose. It's about the pattern of dosing and the dangerousness. I mean, a good analogy would be, imagine if people took out their appendix on the kitchen table by themselves with a rusty pair of scissors. Would we be saying that surgeons ought not do appendix operations? <laughs> of course we wouldn't. And the surgeons would say, 
how can that bizarre practice mm. of removing your own appendix with a pair sure. of rusty scissors in any way be shine a light on what we do and, in hospitals? And the fundamental underpinning double standard or hypocrisy with all this is that people are prescribed drugs to come off of other drugs. Mm-hmm. Well, they're prescribed drugs to get themselves well from reactions to other drugs. Um, yeah. You know, like methadone with heroin, for example, you know, people will be taking Siroxac, Prozac if they have anxiety from other things. This whole sense of what we deem to be an okay drug and what we deem yeah. to be not, it appears on the outside as a kind of objective scientific criteria, but it's very subjective, isn't it? it it's very inconsistent. Um, yeah, it is. And, and I'm certainly not an anti-psychiatrist. I'm not, mm. um, you know, methadone is an incredibly helpful and useful drug and saves many lives. Street heroin is a very dangerous way of taking opiates. Far better to be on a controlled, regulated dose of methadone or buprenorphine. And similarly, I'm not anti-SSRIs and anti-antidepressants. There is a time and a place where they're the correct drugs. But the point is, we need regulated systems of doing this. Certainly, there's an overprescribing, particularly at the primary care level, GPs, of um, antidepressants. And they're not always effective for all the people they're prescribed for. And they're prescribed for far too long. It's a sticking plaster, isn't it? It is. And sometimes sticking plaster is what you need. But really, the ultimate cure, if you like, when it comes to mental health problems, is psychotherapy talking about your issues with someone that you trust in a safe and facilitative environment. And that's where psychedelic psychotherapy really comes in. And let's get into that, the deeper stuff, trauma, addiction. As you said, there's a connection to childhood trauma. Gable Marte, he's done a hell of a lot of work in making that connection. People that have PTSD, this is stuff that isn't going to get shifted just by taking a prescribed drug for a certain amount of time. You could argue it isn't necessarily even going to be shifted just by talking to somebody or even just going through, certainly with PTSD, generic psychotherapy is not as effective as some other other forms of therapy, um, like EDMR or somatic experiencing or TRE, those type of more deeper therapies that effectively shift your trauma and, and allow your brain to process a memory that's kind of stuck. Yeah. And then we then move on even further that into the use of psychedelics for this. It's in, I tell me if I'm wrong, sort of talk it through for, for the layman. Effectively, you're able to access places in your memory and in your mind in a quicker way than you would do ordinarily. Yeah, well, let me just go back to the first part of what you were saying about what's going on in the brain and the mind and psychologically for people with mental health problems. Now, the vast majority of mental disorders, and it, and it really doesn't matter what diagnosis, the vast majority of mental disorders particularly depression, anxiety, eating disorders, PTSD, personality disorders, and addictions, most of them are due to a sense of stuckness, being stuck in ruminations, stuck in habitual behaviors, stuck in a loop, unable to get past a stuck narrative or story in your head. And in the vast majority of cases, this occurs in early childhood. This is a result of childhood abuse and maltreatment in which we form the basic fundamental building blocks of our personality um, and our beliefs. What is love? What is attachment? What is trust? What is violence? What is lying? What is cheating? What is stealing? What is dropping litter? What is a brother? Um, All of these things we learn when we're tiny, and we tend to keep those same narratives. Now, if you've been maltreated or abused as a child, you will almost certainly get some kind of mental disorder. Now, it may be depression, it may be anxiety, it may be an eating disorder. It almost doesn't matter. They're all trauma-related disorders. And once you've got them, it's very difficult to shift them because we tend to go back to the same old ways of thinking, these same old behavioral patterns. And this is because, from a neurobiological point of view, these narratives in the brain are represented by very ingrained, used brain networks and pathways, which we use again and again and go to as our default pathways. So where do psychedelics come in? Well, the, the current treatments for these issues are daily maintenance drugs, SSRIs, antidepressants, mask the symptoms, improve the mood, and then psychotherapy. Sit down with a therapist and talk about your difficulties overcome them and move on. Now that's okay for a significant number of patients. For over half of the patients with those kinds of trauma-based disorders, they just, the drugs don't work, they don't effectively mask the symptoms, and they can't engage in the psychotherapy because the barriers are just too great. Now what psychedelics offers, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, they offer the chance to 
regrow and readdress those stuck narratives. They offer the chance for new options and new opportunities for you to really rewind all the way back to childhood and address those very early narratives where they arose and then move forward. So psychedelics are really the best, newest and most innovative technology that we've had in psychiatry for the last 50 years. This is the advert bit, so feel free to zip on if you like. But those who haven't heard and don't know anything about the cable, stop and just quickly listen to this. We are a cooperative, and uh, that means we're a membership organisation, and you can become a member. And that basically means you sign up from the website and you chuck some money in each month. Could be anything from a pound, five pound, ten pound, whatever you can afford. And you get a chance to have a say in meetings, AGMs, uh, put forward suggestions for articles we can write, guests for this show, anything really the media needs a bit of a kick up the backside in this city and, uh, and wider so this is a chance to actually get off the fence get off the sofa and uh, have your say back to the chat so how would it look that if i've walked into your clinic and i'm wanting some treatment talk me through what would happen so uh, at awaken life sciences we have four clinics bristol london oslo and trondheim and we're opening further clinics in manchester dublin and edinburgh and Sweden and Denmark in coming months and years. The clinics offer, at the moment, ketamine-assisted psychedelic psychotherapy. Ketamine is the only licensed psychedelic drug there is at the moment. Why ketamine? Is it a legality thing? So ketamine is a medicine with a capital M. The other psychedelics, uh, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, MDMA, these drugs are not medicines with a capital M. They are research chemicals. They can only be used in research protocols. So we can study them, but until they become approved licensed medicines, they can only be used for research. I I thought ketamine was originally a horse tranquilizer. Have I got that wrong? You have got that wrong. Um, Ketamine (laughs) is an anesthetic that is used very widely in humans. Um, Indeed, ketamine has been used in humans every day. Um, Every hospital all over the world uses ketamine all the time. Every casualty department, every surgical department, it's a very widely used human medicine. Um, It's very frustrating, this this narrative of it being a horse tranquilizer. I mean, you don't say penicillin, that dog antibiotic, or morphine, that cat analgesic. My cat got given morphine. My dog got given penicillin. So yeah. why why ketamine has stuck as a horse tranquilizer is most bizarre. It, it is indeed used in veterinary medicine, ketamine, as are pretty much most of the other drugs used in humans. So for some reason, it's a, it's a narrative. And I urge you as a media person to crush that narrative and, and give the truth. Ketamine is a widely used human medicine. Here today in Bristol, it will have been used dozens, if not hundreds of times. It's a very effective, short-acting, powerful anaesthetic. It's yeah. a very safe anaesthetic. Um, Indeed, it's the anaesthetic of choice in children and the elderly because it doesn't suppress breathing and it's not cardiotoxic. People that are familiar with the dance scene will know the phrase going into a K-hole. Presumably, it's in a measured amount. uh, So the the doses we use, we we use it intramuscularly. So it's a small injection in the top of the arm, a bit like the sort of amount of fluid you might use for a vaccine um, just in the shoulder. Um, we offer, so it's an eight-week course of psychotherapy, which involves 11 visits to the, the clinics, uh, the Awaken Clinic in Bristol being one of them. Um, over that eight weeks, 11 visits, four of the sessions are ketamine-assisted, and the other sessions are non-drug psychotherapy. You stay with the same therapist throughout for the whole course. Um, you start with preparation sessions to build up an agenda, and then you have the four weekly ketamine-assisted sessions, followed by a next-day non-drug therapy session. And these non-drug sessions are essential for integration of the psychedelic experience. When the drug is delivered, um, the patient is lying on a couch or a bed with eye shades on and headphones, listening to music, and they're very much encouraged to be with the drug experience. Very little talk therapy takes place during the drug experience, which lasts about an hour, an hour and a half maximum, and then they can go home. Um, they're all outpatient appointments. So the bulk of the psychotherapy goes on in the non-drug sessions. The way the drug works, ketamine, um, it opens the window of opportunity to enhance the psychotherapy. And it does this by increasing actual nervous tissue growth. 
you have a growth of um, you have an injection of protein into the brain through the through the uh, the neurons in which the ketamine is working, um, and then this translates into new dendrites, which are connections between the nerve cells, and that translates psychologically into new ways of thinking. So you can tackle old problems with new ideas. So the the drug is a primer in a way. It yeah. it it primes the brain. So the psychotherapy is the most effective. And that's that's how ketamine works. I know that you are one of the few people in the UK that you've actually received yourself directly in a legal research setting, MDMA, LSD, DMT, psilocybin, ketamine. In your experience, in a therapeutic sense, which had the most the most sort of healing impact on you? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, those are all very different drugs. I, you know, I, I yeah. can, as a medical doctor, go on record and say I've taken MDMA, psilocybin, DMT, ketamine, and LSD because I've received all of those as a legal, uh, healthy research um, subject in research. Um, I've also administered those in research. Um, now, when you say which is which is the most healing, it's a really good question because the drug experience itself is only a small part of the healing process. The non-drug sessions, the psychotherapy are crucial. So each of those different drugs has different ways of working and certainly has different psychological effects subjectively. Um, but some of them suit some people more than others. Some of them suit certain conditions better than others. Um, let's, let's, I, let's, let's go through that then. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I can say, I mean, I've, I've pretty much taken all of those uh, with the exception of, psilocybin um but then i would psilocybin is in some magic mushrooms i think if i'm if i'm if yes, i'm right it, it, yeah. it's in most magic mushrooms most magic, so, so in, in that regards than i have um and you're right there it's very different experiences and you can kind of tap into different modalities i suppose or different kind of you know in the case of certain psychedelics different alternative realities if i was to say what would mdma be good for or what would lsd be good for can we just go through one by one so yeah. mdma assisted therapy which has been highly successful in america what's that particularly useful for well do you know i would like to rather not pigeonhole the drugs into okay. different conditions what they all do and they all do it in different ways biologically what they all do is they all open this window of opportunity for psychotherapy um in different ways because what they're all doing is getting past this stuckness, this yeah. rigidity of thinking in different ways. Um, MDMA is particularly good for trauma-based disorders because what MDMA does is it turns off the fear response. There's a part of the brain in the limbic system called the amygdala, which fires in response to fear. And that's a barrier to psychotherapy. Um, when, when your amygdala is stimulated by fear, you you don't want to talk about difficult subjects. You avoid talking uh, about your trauma. And the amygdala would be when people have PTSD, effectively that's your danger, your red alert kind of zone in your brain that's always reacting to potential danger. Is that yeah, right? But not yeah. just PTSD, any trauma-based disorder, which is most disorders, as I said. So PTSD particularly, because it's focused, I mean, it's got the word trauma in the title, but yeah. most of these chronic un untreatable mental disorders are trauma-based. So MDMA turns off the amygdala, allows you to do psychotherapy. Psilocybin works in a different way. So that's the, that's the active component in magic mushrooms. That increases connectivity between multiple regions that are not normally connected. That has the same kind of effect psychologically in terms of a window of opportunity. It allows you to see things in a new light. Ketamine, as I described, that works biologically by growing new nerve fibers, um, which again, psychologically has the same effect. It's this window of opportunity to uh, provide new, new ways of thinking and new options. So all these different drugs, they all feel different, they all work differently, but it's really about the combination of the medicine or the drug together with the psychotherapy. Just taking the drug alone may be minimally effective or even potentially unsafe if, if taken in an unsafe setting. It's about the relationship with the therapist. And at Awaken Life Sciences in the clinics, you know, we work very hard to produce this very warm, gentle, facilitative environment. Uh, the clinics are all run by experts with a great deal of experience in this field. Uh, you mentioned Professor David Nutt, who's the head of our scientific board. We have a, a, a terrific board of experts working behind us. And we are setting ourselves up as being the best, the premier high street place for the delivery of psychedelic medicine throughout the UK and Europe. Are you confident that, like in America, you will be able to use other drugs like MDMA and DMT in a clinical setting yeah, at absolutely. some point? 
um, you know, we, we decided to get going with these clinics and start them now, even though there's only ketamine available, because we know that these other drugs are in the pipeline. MDMA is likely to be licensed by the end of next year. Why? That soon? Okay. Yeah, 2024. Initially in the States and as soon as possible in Europe. Psilocybin, magic mushrooms in the next year or so after that. It's just a matter of getting the research done, collecting the data, submitting it to the regulatory authorities, and then they will be granted approvals and licenses. You know, the regulatory authorities don't see these drugs as any different from any other drug. And nor should they. They have to jump through certain scientific hoops. You have to do a certain number of studies on a certain number of people, demonstrate safety and efficacy. And when you've done that, they can't not approve them. Was so, there resistance to even doing those research operations previously? Is that what's taken so long? Um, there's not really resistance because they've all been very well-designed scientific studies. You know, there's far more toxic, dangerous, con- contentious studies than these going on in science all the time. The difficulty is the money. It's getting the funding to do these. Most human pharmacology research is, is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. Well, this is kind of my point. That was kind of my wider point. I remember watching an interview with um, Dr. Van der Volk, who's written lots, lots of books on trauma. So he's a kind of a world leader on this kind of stuff, saying about how he found it really difficult to get any funding for research around around EDMR, this is going back 10 years or so ago, around other yeah. therapies. But yoga, he didn't. And that was because yoga was seen as quite mainstream. More people did it. And there's lots of studies to indicate that yoga has a really, really beneficial effect upon trauma. But there's other modalities that haven't even been researched that he says are far more effective. I can't get the bloody funding to do it. So it's yeah. a bit of a game you have to play to, to well, a degree. It is because if you think about it, if you're, if you're a pharmaceutical industry and you've got billions in the bank, you can throw 20 million at this drug, 20 million at that drug, because if one of them happens to stick and becomes the next Prozac, then you'll make trillions. Now, who's going to throw all that money at psychedelics? You don't have to take them every day. This is why, although this is drug therapy, it's really the antithesis of the current medical model. Yeah. Treatment in psychiatry, you take this SSRI, this antidepressant, every single day, day in, day out, for weeks, months, years, decades, just to mask the symptoms. It's not a cure. It doesn't get you better. It just takes the edge off the symptoms. So dare I say there are vested interests that would like people to continue to be dependent and wouldn't want people to be healed. Well, I don't... Financially speaking, if you're a big pharmaceutical... I do not want to go that far because that sounds like a conspiracy theory. You know, Mm -hmm. I think there are very good people working in the pharmaceutical industry who... Want, want to get people better. The idea that there's a, uh, a, a an intentional insistence on keeping people ill, I don't buy into it at that level. But rather, we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner of apathy in which we've allowed this biological top-down model to develop over the years and we're stuck in it. And psychedelic psychotherapy, in some ways, it's a marketing nightmare. You only need to take the drug two, three, four (laughs) times and you're better. And you don't need to be on drugs. These are drugs to come off drugs. These are drugs that you take two or three or four times in a controlled clinical medical setting, get better, then not have to sit on SSRIs for the rest of your life. That's a marketing nightmare. Um, But we're finding ways to do it through scale and through building clinics and through training therapists and uh, developing licensed protocols that we can license to other clinics. What we do know is that mental health care is a huge market, a uh, financial market. It's a is there a danger then? As well on society and individuals and sure. healthcare systems. We spend millions on psychiatry and mental health care in the UK, but most of our treatments are suboptimal. People remain long-term, lifelong patients unnecessarily. So the psychedelic therapies really are this new technology that offers an entirely new paradigm for how we treat mental disorder. But potentially then people could lose money from people being dependent on those drugs. And I guess the flip flip side to that is, I guess, is there a concern if things move in the direction? I know that you you have a, a, I saw on a Twitter, a recent development agreement with Catalent Pharma. Is there a danger that this could end up being dominated by some of the big corporates, big pharmaceutical industries like other drugs is is that is that a slight concern that you might have well yes it is and and for that reason when you, if you look at the psychedelic startups around the world 
they're doing this for themselves. They're yeah. not partnering with the big pharma groups. So Awaken Life Sciences, is, is it's a biotech company. We're doing our own research. We are, and it's a, it's a small cottage industry. Um, we, we're learning from the mistakes of the pharmaceutical industry of the past. It's a very different way of doing medicine. And we're ethical. And the point is, these new psychedelic startups are ethical companies. Of course, they have to have profit and they have board members and they have shareholders. We need to have profit to make the business work. But I think being rooted in, in the psychedelic experience is a humbling experience. Um, but this really has is. happened, doesn't it? Sorry to interrupt. I mean, if you think about the decriminalization and, and the legalization of marijuana in some states in America, it has become, in the US, a huge industry. And you've got these massive sort of warehouses and massive greenhouses, you know, all over California and Texas growing this stuff. It's become in the hands of bigger industries. And I suppose well, there is a danger yeah, that it could I mean, go down that road if it's not managed properly. Well, it does need to be managed, but just because it's been scaled up doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. You know, um, Apple's a, lar a large industry, cars are large industries. If you're going to increase accessibility of something that was relatively small, had small usage into large usage, it has to become industrial. That's just scale, isn't it? And I think a lot of people can, are concerned about the concept of medicalization of psychedelics as if that equals corporatization, as if yeah. that's something wrong. I don't have that fear. I see this as accessibility. At the moment, um, there are millions of people who could benefit from this, not just hippies and drug users, people who are prepared to break the law and go to raves or have the money yeah. to go, go off to Peru and take ayahuasca. Little silver-haired old ladies who deserve yeah. and need this medicine. Now, I think you said that, didn't you, in some conference. I'm not in this just for middle-class hippies or something. You said that no, in some conference. I, I yeah, that all the time. And I think yeah. one of the biggest challenges for the psychedelic uh, medicalization industry in coming years is to get this onto free public health care. This yeah. needs to be taken up by the NHS. It needs to be available in insurance companies in other mm. countries that don't have national health services. And it needs to be free and available. And it makes perfect sense for that. This is economically viable. I often say in my talks, there's nothing more expensive than the untreated psychiatric patient. They cost millions over a yeah, lifetime. Yeah, for sure. They yeah. don't work. Yeah. They have disability benefits. They offend. They go to prison. Social services step in and remove their children. They need new livers. They have hospital admissions. It's very, very false economy. The social cost, yeah. Undertreat yeah. mental health care. So yeah. suddenly psychedelics seem like not only the right moral, ethical and clinical thing to do, but also the right economical thing to do. Because if we can do in our awakened clinics, um, as well as or better in an eight week outpatient treatment for alcoholism than you can do in an expensive six month rehab, then this yeah. makes economic sense. If it makes economic sense, and you've just said you want to try and make it, I guess, affordable for everybody, if not sort of free uh, at the point of need. I've had a look at the costings at the clinic you do in Bristol for, for ketamine. It, it is quite expensive. It is around, I think it's about £6,000 or something like that. So is that is that just because you have to cover costs and there's no way that can be more affordable? Because I would imagine for a lot of people that is outside their price range at the moment. It, it, it is because people are used to free healthcare. You know, if, if people, how much would it cost to have a baby or to have a broken leg mended or to go on to asthma or diabetes medication? We're not used to paying anything. We want zero cost for our healthcare. So um, it's, it's £4,995 for the eight-week course here in Bristol. It, it, it is a lot of money. And especially... Well, why is it so much? I mean, because obviously you can buy ketamine, you know, relatively cheap of psychotherapy. You can get for, you know, you know, 70, 60, 70 quid a, a session. Why is it so, so expensive? Um, it's a very specialist service with highly trained, experienced staff. Um, the cost of the medicine is very low. I mean, ketamine itself is about eight pounds a bottle for, the, and you can do 10 patients from it. The medicine is, is not a big part of the cost. The main thing is the, uh, the many numbers of psychotherapy hours. It's specialist psychotherapy, um, and it's delivered by experts in this in in this setting. Is it quite um, a specialised field of psychotherapy then, in terms of the oh, therapist yeah. being skilled and trained to be able to do the assisted therapy? Yeah, so um, you need to be a clinician or therapist to to do the training, and then the training is is very specific around the use of psychedelic. So we we train we train our own therapists here in the clinic um, and across the clinics that we have at Awaken. Um, you know, that the price does sound a lot, but if you think about it, 
a, a six-month inpatient rehab for the treatment of alcoholism is forty, fifty thousand pounds, and we get better results in an eight-week outpatient treatment for five thousand pounds. So it's not free. But when people say, "Why isn't it on the NHS?" my answer is, "Ask the NHS." There is nothing we want more than this to be on the NHS. We would they have started, haven't they? They have started to. So my friend who works with Bristol Drugs Project said they are beginning to refer people to yeah. uh, EDMR therapy, which is quite that's quite a, quite a radical shift um, because we uh, obviously yeah, well, EDMR yeah. is a nice license. It's a, it's a nice recommended. So National Institute of Clinical Excellence um, yeah. EMDR is an NHS treatment. So. That's but, but that's accurate. relatively new, though, isn't it? It, yeah. you know, it would always be the model, the CBT kind of model of therapy. That I, I think it's, you know, obviously EDMR started a lot of success with war vets and stuff like that, is that for that to suddenly be using for addiction and they get some very successful results. That seems seems a little bit more progressive, I guess, moving in the right direction to recognise yeah. that there are other modalities of healing. I think the difficulty is that, you know, this will be on the NHS. I absolutely guarantee psychedelics will be in the, on the NHS in due course. Whether it's yeah. two years, five years or 10 years, who knows? That's up to the NHS to pull their finger out and start recognising it. Um, in the meantime, what we didn't want to do was wait. I, I've been working with psychedelics for 15, 20 years, and I wanted to get the UK and Europe's first clinics open. And so we, we've opened with ketamine-assisted psychedelic therapy, which has to be self-funded. As soon as we can get this into public health care, we will. I wasn't prepared to wait. The NHS is a very slow, archaic beast in deciding what it wants to fund. And it's pretty normal that innovative medical practices start privately. A lot of cancer drugs start privately. Um, yep. It takes a while for the NHS to get decided to what it's going to fund. Yep. And we weren't going to wait. But as soon as we can get this into free public health care, we will. Yeah, I'm interested also in, in in that role of the the assisted therapy because I think what's interesting, as we said right at the start of the conversation, that even in the rave scene there was people that sort of got high and there were people that got kind of wasted and there are people that probably felt in their own way they were healing themselves as traumas by you know certainly some friends of mine and then even sort of family felt that there was a a release from some of their stuff just from going to kind of raves i also know people that have done the wyaska experience and as we spoke about the indigenous ceremonies have gone on since time memorial that the role of the shaman or the role of the healer has always been quite paramount, particularly in those sort of psychedelic journeys. Do you see the, the assisted therapist in, in a similar vein to a shaman, or, or is that being a bit... Um... Uh, no, I don't think it's... I, I think it's a reasonable analogy, you know. The point is that psychedelic therapy requires guidance. If you just yeah, do it exactly. on your own, um, you're less likely to have positive effects and you're also more likely to have um, harmful effects, although they're minimal. So the, you can argue that a DJ is a is a shaman, you know, leading this group co community cohesive ceremony with repetitive beats in at nighttime in a trance like fashion. Um, you know, yeah, and yeah. the the psychedelic therapist has this very important role. It's what we call non directive therapy. You're not pushing the patient. You're not asking them questions. You're not. It's not like CBT where you're asking to, them to do exercises from a manual. It's very much led by the patient to see what emerges from the psychedelic experience. The patient leads the therapist and the therapist holds the space, contains the experience. And then in the non-drug sessions, we then talk about the material that's come out and the patient guides it to where they need to go. And it's very effective when it's done in this way. How much credence do you put on the spiritual experience yeah, um, I know a lot of psychotherapists you know sometimes I think things have changed a bit over the years but generally speaking I mean I remember having therapy 20 years ago and it was like as if that you know nothing existed below your neck in yeah. a very sort of Freudian model very clinical and it put me off a bit really and I went on a, a different kind of journey yeah. more into alternative health and and different paths yeah. and, and body I mean, work I and stuff. And I'm no, I, the reason I ask that is because I, I think you, you've written a foreword for a book about psychedelic Buddhism. Yeah. So this is something for you personally that's important, but how much do you put that into the healing experience of people that come to your clinic? What we tend to do, my, my personal approach as a doctor and a clinician in this field is to be led by the patient. If the patient wants to talk about energy levels and kundalini and chakras and mm -hmm. those kinds of things, then I'll meet them there. And I'll talk yeah. with them there. If they want to talk about receptors and neurotransmitters and brain pathways, then we'll use that. The most important thing is not to impose a language 
or a narrative as the clinician, but to let the patient lead the way. The most, you know, what we're looking for is improvement in functioning. It's not just about improved scores on depression scales. Um, it's not even about personal enlightenment. It's about functioning. Are you, well, the, it's dysfunction that takes us to the doctor. You don't go to the doctor saying, oh, um, I've got a low score on my BDI depression rating scale. You go in saying, I've lost my job. My kids won't see, my, my, see me. My girlfriend's left. It's functional issues that take you to the doctor. And it's functional outcomes that should drive our practice. I want to see yeah. people not just feeling better, but actually performing better, improve behaviors and activities, getting on with life. But I think often the door then does sometimes become open for other people once that functionality comes back or the dysfunctionality is removed and functionality in the world mm -hmm. comes back, other possibilities become open. People have really been deeply healed from, from trauma. You know, however you want to define that, what language you want to use, have a commitment to self-development or the spirituality of some people want to, want to use those words that, that it kind of opens a portal a little bit into what can become a lifelong kind of journey. Yeah, and 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 I would facilitate that journey at the patient's direction. You know, I, I'm not a particularly spiritual person myself, personally. Um, uh, I, I believe that spirituality is a psychological phenomenon induced by electrical activity in the temporal lobe. Um, and I think, <laughs> you know, that's great, yeah. and it's kind of sweet yeah. when people mistake that for a deity. But if, yeah. if that works for them, then you know, bring it on. There's all sorts of things. And whatever makes a person work and function better in the safest and most effective way, I fully support. I would like to promote Breaking Convention, which is the UK's largest psychedelic conference that's taking place in Exeter between the 20th and 22nd of April this year. So that's called Breaking Convention. Look out for that. Um, all of the world's renowned scientists in psychedelics. Will People be from all over the world are coming to that. I've just gone yeah. up on, on the internet. Yeah. That looks amazing. Yeah, Multidisciplinary conference. It's become full circle and quite radical in a sense. I remember in 1990 having heated debates with people that would not touch drugs with a barge pole, that how liberating taking ecstasy was yeah. and how healing it was and how it can heal trauma and all this sort of stuff. And then 30 odd years later, yeah, it's finally bubbling up to be potentially accepted as a healing drug. I find it amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I've uh, really enjoyed being on this podcast today. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Okay. All the best. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Dr. Ben Sessa, writer, psychiatrist and researcher for this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. And we'll be back next time with a brand new guest and another fantastic topic. I'm Neil Maggs. Big thanks to our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, and to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music.